This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And every now and then we talk about how we came up with one of our ideas or what made us feel like we wanted to cover a certain subject. Mm -hmm. We do that a lot. Yeah, I guess we do. (laughs) We do that a lot. Usually it's a listener suggestion. But this one is a little bit different. And I'm sure you have these too, Dublina, where you read a book or watch a movie or even watch a TV show and you come away with a podcast idea. Sure. So this is one of those cases. Earlier this summer, I was watching the 1956 John Wayne film, The Searchers. And um, just to give a little background on it, it's a movie about a man who's returned to his brother's Texas home a few years after the, the Civil War, but soon sees most of his family killed in a Comanche raid. And I'm not going to give away any spoilers, even though this movie is almost 60 years old. But after the raid, he becomes really obsessed with finding his kidnapped niece, even though it soon becomes clear he'd rather see her dead than assimilated with her kidnappers. It's a very disturbing premise. I mean, there, there are numerous disturbing parts of the movie, but that one in particular is is upsetting. And um, when I started reading about the film, I realized that some critics had pointed out similarities to to that story and, and to the book that it was based on. And the real-life 1836 kidnapping of a nine-year-old Texas girl named Cynthia Ann Parker. Yeah, and Cynthia Ann's story is particularly remarkable. It's a double tragedy marked by two captures, but we thought it would be a great way to look at the Plains Indians' wars on a more personal level, especially since it opens the door to the story of her son, Quanah Parker, the last Comanche chief. So just as Cynthia Ann's life centered on displacement and not really fitting in, Quanah's is about excelling in two very different worlds, trying to mediate between them and encouraging peace among his people without sacrificing all of his culture. So it's kind of why we had to pack it into two episodes here. It is. And in this first episode, it's going to focus more on Cynthia Ann and the background and, and how these wars started 
in the first place. And then the second episode is going to focus on their end and on Quana's life um, bridging those two worlds. So uh, fortunately, though, we've spoken so much in the past year about frontier life and settlement in Texas and, of course, Indian Territory and what's now Oklahoma. My favorite place. Devlina's favorite place to define. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That I think most listeners probably feel like they have a good background on this time already. But just to give you just a little bit of information, in the 1830s, as Eastern Native American tribes were being forcibly resettled in the West on lands that were traditionally controlled by Plains Indians, and as Anglo settlers pushed West, the nomadic Plains tribes were feeling hemmed in. I mean, it still seems like a lot of land, but they were used to covering huge amounts, hunting, and uh, were, were really feeling the, the stress on their resources at this point. Some bands ended up assimilating, dying out, or entering reservations, but others retaliated, carrying out violent raids on settlers to frighten them back east and and to defend their land. So in this struggle, which lasted about 40-some-odd years, the Comanche were considered the best at this. They were hard to trace, they were masters on horseback, and they were seemingly able to survive on nothing and then just kind of disappear into their vast inhospitable lands called the Comancheria. And they were just a force to be reckoned with. They were, yeah. I mean, that that what you just mentioned, Evelina, about them disappearing, that was a big part of it. Um, even when you have the, the U.S. military involved, you have the cavalry involved, they just have a lot of trouble finding them most of the time. But our story starts with a Comanche, a Kiowa, and a Caddo raid on Fort Parker, which was a family compound in a fort that had been settled in 1830 by the extended Parker family. And it was great land, very prime land, right at the headwaters of the Navasota River in Texas. But also in a dangerous part of the world. It was way, way out on the frontier. And in May of 1836, somebody didn't take the proper precautions and left the fort door open when the men went off to, to work on the with the animals and, and on the property. And the war party easily entered through that open fort door quickly killed three Parker family members and two other men and uh, kidnapped some of the others. Nine-year-old Cynthia Ann was with her mother and her six-year-old brother John and a group of women and children who were trying to flee the fort through a meadow when they were stopped by a warrior named Peta Nokana and, uh, and taken from there. So in addition to Cynthia Ann and her brother, some of the people from their family who were kidnapped included Rachel Parker Plummer and her son, James. Rachel Parker Plummer was Cynthia Ann's cousin. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the 
Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, In addition, Rachel's aunt Elizabeth was also kidnapped, and the family was abused, but they were eventually, all of them, including John Parker, who wasn't returned until the 1840s, they were all eventually ransomed back. Except for Cynthia Ann. Except for Cynthia Ann. And consequently, she became something of a legend on the frontier with her mother and her uncle. And I I imagine her extended family really desperate to find her with newspapers romanticizing the idea of her as this beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed captive growing up among the Comanche. Uh, Really sort of... it gets pretty strange, especially as she gets older, the, the things written about her. Um, and according to Jan Reed in Texas Monthly, she even became kind of a warning tale for kids. You know, don't wander too far from home or you might end up like Cynthia Ann. But by the mid-1840s, all this speculative stuff turned into actual sightings. There started to finally be real sightings of her because they weren't very sure she was alive at this point. There hadn't been uh, reports of, of a child who looked like her um, in, until the mid-1840s. And as it later turned out, she had just been living a normal Comanche life. She'd been adopted by Comanche parents and raised as their daughter. Yeah, and not just that. She also went on to marry her captor, the war chief, Petanalkana, and had two sons with him, Kwana, which means fragrant or odor. I think it's sort of up for debate. Well, and sometimes even stink. It, it's, um, yeah, kind of a contentious <laughs> definition. And the second son was Peanut, who was named after Cynthia Ann's favorite childhood snack. And they later had a daughter named Totsia, or Prairie Flower. And Cynthia Ann even had a new name herself. It was Nadwa, meaning she carries herself with grace or someone found. Yeah, and we actually talked to Dr. Kenneth Day for this episode, who kindly helped us out with some of the Comanche pronunciations. He heads up the Learn Comanche Project, and we were asking about that one because I just kept on seeing these wildly different definitions. I mean, clearly fragrant and odor kind of on the same level, but she carries herself with grace and someone found sounds so different. And he said that a lot of the translations are like that. It's um, 
um, especially with these names. They're just all over the map. But um, most importantly about these reports coming back regarding Cynthia Ann uh, were the accounts of her from about 1846 to 1852. And, and that was that her people refused all offers to ransom her back. And she didn't seem to want to go anyway. So it was... You can't have her. We want to keep her. She's one of us. And, and she won't go. And and she won't go. And as snatches of, of all this information came back to the settlers, of course, Lucy Parker, Cynthia Ann's mother, was thrilled to know her daughter was just alive and sent out her teenage son to, to search for her. But not everybody was very happy with the news that was coming back. And in fact, to a lot of people, it was just incomprehensible news. For one thing, that she would uh, marry this notorious raider, Peta Nakana, and be happy with him. I mean, people didn't seem to blame her for what was happening, but they were not happy that she was happy, uh, that she might actually prefer life as a Comanche instead of life as a, as a settler. Yeah, so very controversial choice, very controversial life. And there were other reports that kind of hinted at at her life, at Cynthia Ann's life and the life of the Comanche who were still fighting. By the early 1850s, some Comanche bands were settling on reservations and others resisted pretty successfully considering the frontier was creeping back from where it had been in Cynthia Ann's childhood. And according to the sightings, Cynthia Ann, Pedanokna, and their family were clearly jumping bands, moving away from from the frontier to maintain a free life and to keep on fighting. Eventually, they joined the Quahadis, who were considered the toughest Comanche band out of all of them. But from 1852, no further reports were heard from her. And and that's how it stayed until late 1860, when a Quahadi war party led by Nakana entered Texas, and uh, again, the purpose of this raid was to frighten settlers into abandoning the area. And according to Gregory Minchno in Wild West, this 1860 raid uh, became a particularly notable one in Texas for three reasons. One, it was especially brutal. We're going to go over a few details on that, but but not into the full list. The next was that Cynthia Ann came along. And then the third was that Cynthia Ann was recaptured. I mean, that's really why um, why this raid in particular gets discussed so frequently. But the attacks on settlers began November 26th at the home of James Landman. Um, Mrs. Landman and her six-year-old son were murdered. One teenage girl was dragged from a horse, then killed. The raid continued at a pretty fast clip at the Gage home, the Sanders home, where, among others, a, a baby and a 65-year-old woman were murdered. Then it took kind of a surprising turn, at least direction-wise. The party moved south to Parker County, which is, of course, the same Parker that is Cynthia Ann's family. Right. And we should maybe have put in a little warning here. It continues to get kind of violent. So if you're squeamish about this kind of stuff, you may want to skip ahead a little bit. But just continuing on with the raid, some houses were raided and ransacked and the inhabitants spared. Others, though, were targeted, like that of Ezra and Martha Sherman. While the raiders let Ezra and the children go, they raped, scalped, and had their horses trample Martha Sherman, who lived four days more to deliver a stillborn child. Some fended off the attack, like the Eubanks girls, who dressed in boys' clothing and took up really intimidating-looking positions at the pike. Yeah, so just a mix of of things, and it, it seemed to 
to be all over the place what happened to the the various families. But all told, the war party left with more than 300 horses, having killed seven white settlers and wounding more. And just a point on the numbers, too. I mean, it's it's really more about um, inspiring horror than killing loads and loads of people. That was the that was what this type of warfare was about. It was about trying to completely shock people into leaving and a- abandoning these lands they were trying to, to settle um, so that the, the Comanche could reclaim their land. Um, we mentioned Cynthia Ann was with the war party, and while we can't know exactly what her position was with it uh, and whether she even recognized Parker County, her, her childhood home, Minchno does describe that or does mention that Comanche society didn't consider raids to be men-only affairs. He he wrote, almost everyone in Comanche society, including women and children, participated in a raid, either logistically or socially. And that might just mean um, women helping manage the camps or load up all of the, the stolen items. Uh, but sometimes there were even female warriors. James Pollard, one of the men who had stolen horses, quickly started rounding up a posse to pursue the raiders. They gave up after two days of chase because they found that some settlers were already packing up to leave. Others of them were, quote, forded up. So, Well, and I think the posse just, they realized they weren't going to make it. They weren't going to catch right. up with them. So a couple weeks later, two ranger companies, Ranger Captain Lawrence Ross and 21 men from the 2nd Cavalry, arrived to join in with their pursuit. All told, there were about 140 men and Tonkawa scouts who sent out to track Petanakana. And it was Charles Goodnight who found the trail that headed to the Peace River. And on December 19th, a recent camp with the body of one of the stolen children was found, too. And when the rangers and the cavalry approached the camp... They saw women dismantling it, packing up, and it, it was mostly women and children at the camp. Um, at that point, the ranger captain charged, and the cavalry circled around the back of the camp. And um, according to Goodnight, who was pretty horrified by what happened there, he said that the cavalry captain killed every woman trying to flee, quote, almost in a pile. Family secrets. It turns out that just about everyone has them which accounts for the incredible outpouring of community and sharing of these stories that's happening as a result of my podcast, Family Secrets. My name is Danny Shapiro, and I'm a writer, author of the instant New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance, which I wrote after discovering a massive secret that had been kept from me all my life. That discovery changed my life in good ways and hard ways and led to this podcast. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Um, Ross in particular took off after Cynthia Ann. He didn't recognize her as this long lost nine year old captive. Of course, she was in her thirties by this point. Um, she grabbed Prairie Flower, her young daughter, wrapped herself up in a buffalo robe and hopped onto a horse riding bareback, you know, full charge ahead. And, um, but Ross was eventually gaining on her. And before Ross could shoot, she turned around, exposed Prairie Flower and yelled, Americano, Americano. And, um, 
Rolf captured her. He brought her back to, to one of his men and then uh, rode off to pursue and kill a warrior. And this is kind of an interesting point. We're going to talk about it a little more in a minute. But he later insisted that this warrior was Peta Nakana. Um, but like I said, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. The raid was just a complete massacre. Five warriors were killed. Nine women and children were killed. Three women and children were captured. But the focus was really uh, on Cynthia Ann once they realized that this particular prisoner of theirs had blue eyes. You know, they were all wondering, okay, who is this lady? Um, if you read their accounts, they pretty much all claim they were the first one to recognize <laughs> her as as white, for one thing, and then as Cynthia Ann or suggest it. Um, but Goodnight has, has a point that's a little more uh, tragic, or certainly is tragic, and maybe has something to do with his later friendship with Cynthia Ann's son. But uh, he seemed to think a little bit about how she was experiencing this situation at the time. He wrote, we rode right over her dead companions. I thought then and still think how exceedingly cruel it was. Isaac Parker, Cynthia Ann's uncle who lived near Fort Worth, was called in to try to help identify her. According to a neighbor who saw the meeting, Cynthia Ann, quote, sat for a time immovable, lost in profound meditation, oblivious to everything by which she was surrounded, ever and anon convulsed, as if it were by some powerful emotion which she struggled to suppress. So Parker tried to ask her questions in English, but she didn't respond. He finally said, quote, if this is my niece, her name is Cynthia Ann, at which point she beat her chest, stood up, pointed to herself and said, Cincy Ann. So she recognized her own name. And and unsurprisingly, considering that she'd been gone almost 25 years from life as a Texas settler, this was not a happy reunion. You know, she didn't identify herself and then they all embrace and live happily ever after. One of the main reasons is because she likely thought that her husband and sons were both dead. And this gets back to what I was talking about a minute ago. Ross's claim that he killed Nakana at Peace River. Uh, it was a claim that he touted for years afterward, really incorporated into his own legend. Um, and when Cynthia Ann and Nakana's son, Kwana, grew up and entered into the public eye, Kwana always insisted that he and his brother had left with their father on a hunting trip two days before the attack. So his father had never been there. The boys had never been there. His father was clearly not killed. And he said that his father instead died a few years after. Um, some people, though, dispute that story, thinking that maybe it was one that Kwana put forward specifically to try to protect his his father's memory because Peace River was clearly seen as a disaster by the Comanche and Nakano had been in charge of this this raiding party. It's often suggested that if Nakano did live on for a few more years, he kept a remarkably low profile for somebody who had been so powerful, so um, important for so long. And um, obviously so passionate about uh, continuing his Comanche lifestyle. Well, and and passionate about his family, too. I mean, uh, we should note Cynthia Ann was one of several wives, but by all accounts I've read, they had a, a very loving relationship. Um, but one opinion to consider in all of this is that of Esequin, the author of Empire of the Summer Moon, who points that Cynthia Ann's reaction to the situation might tell us more than Kwana's, potentially. 
yeah, she was utterly distraught. She believed and said that her sons had been there. She really thought that they were dead, and that was something that she just continued to believe throughout her entire life. Yeah, according to her neighbors, they they said she gave no indication ever throughout her life that she thought her sons were still alive. And as for the rest of the group that was part of this raid, Charles Goodnight and about 10 scouts managed to track the only two riders who'd managed to escape the fight. Uh, They tracked them about 100 miles to a larger Comanche camp. And though that they were only about 10 and 12 years old, respectively, Pina and Quana would have had good basic survival and hunting skills to have made this sort of trek. It was interesting to read a little bit about what kind of skills specifically boys that age would have had. And and apparently they would have had better survival skills than the average Texan boy. Um, but they wouldn't have been young warriors either. They might have been allowed to have participated in hunts for small game, but probably not anything large, certainly not a raiding party like the one their father had been on. They would have been expert riders because, as we've already discussed, Comanche were all about horses. Um, so they they might have had enough knowledge to, to get by, but clearly they, they needed to find a camp of adults quickly, too. They, they wouldn't have ever been able to or been allowed to just wander away from camp. Um, but we're going to pick up with more on Quana and, and more on Cynthia Ann next time, um, since this is a two-parter episode. It's a pretty sad story with Cynthia Ann, um, a, a mixed bag, I'd say, with Quana, but uh, a pretty amazing story on his behalf, too, uh, as a mediator and somebody who really found a way to excel in two cultures. <laughs> All right, so you have some listener mail to share, Sarah? Yes, we do. And I picked this one because we were talking about uh, Indian Territory again, and it reminded me of an email we got from listener Betsy and her class about Bass Reeves, maybe the last time we talked about Indian Territory in Oklahoma. But she wrote in to say, Dear Dublina and Sarah, a few months ago I asked you for help with the sources for your Bass Reeves podcast, and I think, Dublina, you sent her a, a list of sources. I did. Uh, She went on to say, the podcast and the sources led us to an entire unit on manliness and race to close out my Civil War lessons. My fourth graders absolutely love discussing the different parts of Reeves' life and deciding if they were manly, unmanly, or neutral. For our final closeout discussion, a few of them had some real zingers and deep thoughts. I wanted to share them with you. It is easily one of the times I was most proud of my little ones. So um, she she just sent along a few questions that she'd asked her students, and then a few of their answers. So we're going to read a few of a few of these fourth grade responses uh, to her question. Do you agree that Bass was quote one of the bravest men this country has ever known? Her student Jonas wrote, "Yes, I agree that he is the manliest man ever because he tried to build a quote bridge from slavery and racism to an equal place to live, equal as everybody is treated the same." Well, her student Andrew did not think so. He wrote no because he was showing off for the people, like how he uses a gun. He <laughs> <laughs> thought that one was kind of funny. And then Rain was very impressed and wrote, yes, he was epic and a master of disguise because he was able to battle enemies. So there you go. 
Um, she had another question too that was was more about this building a bridge idea, and she wrote, "Do you agree that one of the manliest things a man can do is to build a bridge and legacy for others to follow?" And uh, her student Travon wrote that uh, he kind of agreed and disagreed with it. He said the country should try to fix slavery by themselves, but it is the whole country's problem, not just Bass Reeves. He can take a break from being a hero, but if they can't, they could have some help. And then finally, Rain again said, no, to save someone's life is more manly. So all kinds of interesting students, uh, responses from her students, and very fun to, to hear. So thank you, Betsy. Thank you, fourth graders. And um, I'm glad you guys enjoyed learning about Bass Reeves so much. Yeah, and we love the perspective that you have to offer. So thanks for that. If you guys have any thoughts on... Bass Reeves, Indian Territory, this podcast, any others that we've done, feel free to write to us. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also look us up on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at Mist in History. And, of course, we have loads of articles on history and culture all on our website. You can look up those by visiting the, the tabs in those areas on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Sammy J. I've been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.